Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part one of this three-part interview on revised USP Chapter 797, William Zelmer talks with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Castango about key changes to note. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Fresenius Cobby. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Costango, who presented a session at the 2019 ASHP Summer Meetings on ensuring compliance with the revised USP Chapter 797. Patty is Director of Accreditation and Medication Safety at Cardinal Health Innovative Delivery Systems. Ashley is Clinical Pharmacy Operations Manager at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri. Eric is President and CEO of Clinical IQ, LLC, and Critical Point, LLC, in Madison, New Jersey. Let me begin by remarking on the depth of experience that will be reflected in this conversation. We have around the table two individuals, Patty Keenley and Eric Costango, who have been involved with the USP Compounding Expert Committee, and a practitioner, Ashley Duty, who has led sterile compounding operations at a children's hospital for a number of years. You know, to those of us who have been in the profession for a few decades, the revised USP Chapter 797 seems like another step in a long process of continuous improvement from that point in history when responsibility for preparing IV admixtures transitioned from a nursing function to a pharmacy function. Patty, I'm interested in your perspective on the significance of the latest 797 revisions in the context of this longer evolution. And it certainly is an evolution. We've known from a patient safety standpoint for years what we need to do. Certainly the original ASHP document on handling hazardous products and handling any compounded products has driven a lot of it, as have other professional organizational documents. But 797 put into place a standard, a federal standard, as to what the minimum standards are. And I think people need to recognize that. 797 is certainly there to guide us, but from a minimum standard standpoint, it means that we need to meet all of those criteria. It's evolved because we've learned more. Uh, regulations such as things in federal or state regulations have been put into place to keep patients safe in terms of compounding. And we've known, as 797 has been around for a number of years now, what the practices need to change in order to make that evolution work. Eric, do you have something to add? Yeah, as you said, Bill, it's a, it's a continuous improvement. You know, I think when the chapter first came out in 2004, um, it was revised in eight because we realized there were things that were missing, things that needed to be addressed that wasn't addressed in the, in the first uh, publication of the chapter. Certainly, the 2008 version has been in place for 11 years. Um, and a lot of things have happened in two th since 2008. You know, we've certainly had a number of catastrophic patient events, which has been used as teachable moments, unfortunately. 
and you know the shortcomings or the uh, the evolution, as Patty said, of improving it and addressing things that weren't uh, caught in the 2008 version needed to uh, be added in this version, and now we can get on with the business of compounding. Well, given uh, the length of time that uh, USB 797 requirements have been in effect, is there anything you'd like to add, either Patty or Eric, about uh, observations on the effect these standards have had on sterile compounding practices in hospitals? Yeah, I like to look at how it's evolved over time and what mm -hmm. these really quality issues have been. A number of folks who haven't been in the profession a long time may think that especially the revision of 797 as a reaction to NECC and the other issues that have come out, and it's not. That 797 was in effect before that. So we've known over time what we need to do correctly. We know in our gut what we need to do correctly, and now there's more science behind what those changes are because we know what's gonna keep patients safe that way. Mm -hmm. Eric, could you give us a sense of what the imperatives were to revise USP 797. For example, was it largely a matter of clarifying certain requirements or accommodating new science or technology or correcting significant deficiencies in the standards? So, Bill, it was all of those factors that influenced the next revision. Certainly, we had a much longer period of time that we were working with the chapter since the chapter's been out now 11 years. More hospitals were adopting it. More state boards of pharmacy were holding people accountable. Obviously, accreditation organizations, departments of public health, certainly the FDA's involvement. So those influences certainly inform the adoption. And with more people using the chapter, greater insight was, um, was brought forth to the committee that said what was working, what wasn't working, what needed to be revised. You know, another thing that has come up there is the recognition by practitioners outside of pharmacy yes. that 797 applies to them as well. So it's not a pharmacy sterile compounding no. chapter, it's any health professionals in any healthcare setting. A lot of the changes were in the new one, the revision, have incorporated those other practitioners, nursing physicians, veterinarians, dentists, uh, right. anybody who in the healthcare profession who's doing that. So I think that has been a, a big recognition. Have you seen that in your system, Ashley? I think the allergenic extracts was really another good example of where that we got those practitioners involved and I heard from our physicians in the clinics who wanted to sort of weigh in about how is this going to affect them. We hadn't heard of this standard before. And I think the revision did do a good job of um, making sure that it was a more usable document for the end user and there was more clear direction on where to go on certain issues. And you know, that's, that's a really good point about how practitioners can influence what these are. Because the physicians had, you know, they weighed in a lot on the public comments that came out there. It wasn't just pharmacy that was doing that. So I think that's been part of the evolution too, is that recognition and responsibility by these other practitioners identifying that they do sterile compounding as well and how that's gonna play into their practice. Mm -hmm. Patty, you said in your presentation that the point of reference uh, in USP 797 has shifted in the revision. Could you explain that and comment on the significance of that shift? I see this as a philosophical change. If you look at 
the 2004 and the 2008 version of 797, the large driver of the beyond use date and a lot of other monitoring was based on the ingredients that were used in each uh, CSP, each compounded sterile preparation. So what mattered most in that term was what did I start with? Did I start with a sterile ingredient or did I start with a non-sterile component? What did I do with it? How many people did it affect? You know, what, what was I going to store it for? All of those kind of things. So I see the revision as a shift from the primary driver being the ingredient in the preparation to where I made it. So the facility in which I made it is more active in the control of how we can keep the CSPs safe rather than the ingredient. And we've learned that over time. That's been part of that evolution as to what matters in the state of control so I sort of sense this is your interpretation yes. of the revision. Yes. It's not that made is, explicit in the new standards. It is not. And okay. so it is my, my philosophical thought on how that changed. Eric, anything to add on that? You know, even to go back a little farther, Bill, is that if you think about the risk levels that came from the ASHP, you know, um, guidance document where it was risk level one, two, and three, USP took it, and certainly with 1206, which was sterile drugs for home use back in the home infusion days. So it really, we were working off of a risk-based approach, which seemed to be consistent with the way that the FDA looks at things. And you know, certainly, you know, the audience should be aware that the FDA certainly had influence or an invisible hand and guide, and also providing great insight to the committee on what they have seen. And I think the facility, because of the number of inspections that were happening and the concerns about the physical plant, certainly can influence the quality of a compounded star preparation. So it certainly made sense in that direction. And one thing we need to make sure that folks know is that this is not the issues that have come up from a patient safety perspective. You may see things in the literature that are primarily outside of health systems, right. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen inside of hospitals and health systems as well. So we can't be too cavalier in our approach to this. We are part of the problem that needs to be solved as well. And there's been a number of outbreaks in hospital-based, uh, in hospitals that have engaged both in sterile, low and medium risk level compounding and high risk or non-sterile to sterile. Mm -hmm. So no one's immune from these problems. You made a point in your presentation, Patty, that administering is not compounding. So this is different from the current requirements? It's a little bit different, but more appropriately, it's just better defined, I think, in the revision. Um, and I use the example, if I were a nurse and I was at the bedside and I had a 10 milligram vial of something and I only wanted five milligrams, Technically, the way 797 is worded right now in the 2004 and 2008 version, that's compounding because you're moving that into another uh, preparation. But what the distinction has been made in the revision is that there is something different between either preparing something for administration or physically administering it, and that's outside of the scope of compounding. So it's much better defined in the um, in the revision. People have to understand, though, just because it's out of scope doesn't mean you can't do it safely. Um, there are CDC recommendations and other guidance documents that can guide that in a much better manner. Mm -hmm. Ashley, do you have something to add? Yeah, I think that's going to be a little bit of a shift and a little 
bit of an adjustment for health systems and something that we're going to have to articulate to our nursing colleagues very clearly about what is in their scope and what we still want them to do and what is still safe for them to do um, and what the pharmacy should be doing. Um, but I, I do think it helps us provide direct patient care. I was giving Patty the example of when our patients are being transported from uh, in a helicopter or in a plane from, you know, across the state to our facility, you know, that if they're drawing something out of a vial to administer to that patient, that that's okay. Like that isn't compounding, um, take care of the patient because that's what we need to do. And a lot of the consternation in health systems has revolved around that definition in the current chapter from an anesthesia perspective, for example. So uh, an anesthesia professional is taking care of obviously one patient at a time. What they're drawing up for use during that case may very well meet the definition of administration now. So that you know, makes things not only easier, but also the, the scope of patient safety is still being preserved. And I think that clarification was because of all these experiences that we now had in trying to navigate what's compounding and what's administration and where, you know, where can we create a brighter line between those two activities, but still, to Ashley's point, take care of patients without encumbering the practitioners unnecessarily. I think we'll still be emphasizing, though, for those anesthesiologists how important it'll be for them to label the things that yes. they're doing, uh, because that doesn't go away just because they can draw those things up um, and use them during right. their there's case. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that we've learned with outbreaks in, in physician-based practices. So safe injection practices are paramount, and everything that we talk about is use good aseptic technique. Eric, um, for facilities that are compliant with 797 today, what are the major operational areas affected by the revised standards? Well, certainly, you know, the facilities, you know, since now the shift has gone from risk levels to facility um, criteria category one and category two, the design of the facility now is going to come into to, to play. And I think with the clarification of where certain pieces of equipment like HEPA filters are located, certainly to maintain a state of control are gonna be important. Certainly I think the rigor in terms of documentation, training and competency is gonna also come into play. Um, how do you maintain the state of control? How do you know, what I like to explain to people is think of your clean room like a patient. Like how do you know your patient is healthy? How do we monitor it, right? We take pressures, we take temperatures, we take humidity levels, right? We do environmental monitoring, we do air sampling, surface sampling, we measure particles. So if we think about our clean room as a patient, it makes understanding, in my opinion, the chapter much easier because as pharmacists we and technicians, we are patient-centric. And, and, and this gives us a way to relate to our training on how we can operate, you know, how we can maintain a compliance space. That concludes part one of this three-part Engaging the Experts interview. The other two parts focus on what's needed to get your facility ready for meeting requirements in revised USP Chapter 797 and practical approaches for doing that. To listen to these, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash USP changes, or you can access them via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at the initiative website.